Small businesses are the backbone of the American economy and here in Michigan, but only 50% will make it five years in business. On Mitten Money, host William Zank will focus on helping Michigan-based business owners with the tough questions that will help them succeed. How do I expand my business? What options do I have for retirement? How do I move forward? Having worked with small business owners throughout his entire career and with excellent attention to detail and strong analytical skills, William Zank of TriStar Trust will unearth answers to these questions and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Mid Money. I'm so happy to kick off this year with a great episode for you all. Today, we're talking about all things personal finance, and as such, we invited on three all-star experts from TriStar to chat about this. First off, you'll hear from Jane Hagen, who is a Senior Vice President and Director of Retirement Plans, where we'll learn more about the ins and outs of retirement plans. Next, you'll hear from Bobby Putnam, who is a Vice President and Financial Planner here at the bank. We chat about with Bobby some of the best practices about building credit and emergency funds as well. Last but not least, we have a chat with John Pickleman, who is a vice president and a relationship manager. With John, we pivot the conversation to talking about behavioral finance, which is a field that explains a little behind the science for why we make certain money-related decisions. So with that being said, let's go start off our conversation with Jane today. How much should people be contributing to their retirement plans? And also, Jane, how often should people be revisiting this number over the years? Well, Will, that's a great question. We get that question a lot from many 401k participants. The kind of rule of thumb I always tell participants when we're doing educational meetings is that, you know, you're going to work 40 to 45 years. Believe it or not, you will work 40 to 45 years. Well, when you do retire, you're going to need a portion of your income to live on. And so it's kind of a good way to look at it. Can I live on 60% of my income when I retire or would I rather live on 100%? Well, most people won't be able to live on 100% of their pay. So what we really encourage them to do is kind of focus and get to 80% of their pay. But again, they look back and say, okay, if I'm going to work 40 to 45 years, how am I going to get to 80% of my pay? So what we say is you need to really save 10 to 12% of your income annually from 22 to 62, that 40 to 45 years. And You know, most people when they're 22 can't start their first job and save 10% of their pay. It would be great if everybody did, but most people don't. So we encourage them to try to get started with 5% and then every year try to increase by percent or two. And then participants will say, well, if the company's matching three or 4%, can't I use that towards my 10 to 12%? So we like to say, you know, use that kind of as your bonus. Because there will be times that you'll be in between jobs, maybe, and you can't contribute. So use that extra matching portion as an extra amount. And it will kind of help make up for the years that you weren't always at the 10 to 12%. In your opinion, what would be the optimal time period that people recheck and check the performance of the funds that are within their plan, or at least what the account value is. And so I know for myself, I like to do it on a quarterly basis. It's not too often, not too far apart, but maybe that's the wrong time period. And so Jane, what would you recommend? It's interesting. We have participants from both spectrums. I mean, some people really literally pull up their account balance every single day. They just want to make sure it's there. And then there's other participants that never, ever look. I really encourage people to look at least once a year. I think quarterly is good. I think if you look at your household balance sheet on a quarterly basis, 
when you're younger, annually is fine because you're just building that net worth. But if as you get older in those last 10 years to retirement, if you're looking at that balance sheet and getting that balance sheet in order every quarter, I think that's perfect. Performance and comparing it to the appropriate benchmarks and so forth, you know, all participants in retirement plans receive disclosures on their investments. And those disclosures show you the appropriate benchmarks that we compare the funds to. And they receive those annually. So I think that's appropriate too, because there's always a trustee involved that's monitoring the plan on a daily basis. So I think if they're looking at performance once a year, they're looking at their accounts quarterly as they get closer to retirement. When they're younger, if they do it once a year, I'm fine with that because they really just need to be building their account balance. At that point, it's more about what they're putting away versus watching it on a daily basis. I know earlier in the discussion, we had mentioned we're throwing around a couple of terms. You know, I know we're throwing around a match. And so do you mind describing to some of the listeners what that match really is, why it's so important, and then maybe talking a little bit about some other things that most people wouldn't know about their retirement plans, but could actually be very important? Sure. The matching formula is most companies do some type of match. In keep in mind not all companies do. Some do a profit sharing contribution. A profit sharing contribution would be given to everybody that's eligible to participate based on the profits of the company, if they wanted to do it that way, or maybe they just had $50,000 they wanted to put in the plan and spread it to all the participants. They can do that. So that's one type of contribution from a company. But the most recognizable contribution that most employees across the United States receive is a company match. So it's usually a matching formula, like 50 cents on a dollar up to 6% of your pay. So in essence, if you defer 6%, you're going to receive 3% from the company as a contribution. And sometimes that goes according to a vesting schedule. The vesting schedule is based on how long you've been there. And so vesting schedule can be up to six years. So once you've been there six years, you're 100% vested in the company match. Keep in mind, you're always 100% vested in your own employee contribution. You know, something else that a lot of people don't realize in the 401k environment is there are Roth contributions that are available in 401k plans. So in 1982, about, is when the 401k world started where you could do pre-tax dollars. So you would save and not pay taxes on the dollars when you put them in, but you pay taxes on the dollars when you take them out. All of that, keeping in mind that we would be in a lower tax bracket someday when we retire. Because again, going back to my scenario, you're probably not going to live on 100% of your income. So if you live on something less, you'll be paying less in taxes. That was the whole concept of the 401k environment. Well, several years ago, Senator Roth introduced the Roth IRA. Well, then the Roth 401k became available. So now participants in most plans are able to defer pre-tax dollars or after-tax dollars. So in the Roth world, you pay the taxes today and you take that money out in retirement tax-free along with all the earnings. So most people don't realize that you can have Roth, you can have pre-tax, but then if you still are maxing out the 401k, and today the limits in 2021 are 19,500 if you're under age 50, or 26,000 if you're over age 50, you could also put money into a Roth IRA if you qualify. So 
you could really max out three different buckets if you have the income to be able to do that. And a lot of people think I can only do one or the other, but you can actually do both. I always say you should max out your company's plan first because it's much more economical to put the money in a corporate plan than it is to be an individual investor. The other thing is, should I do Roth or should I not? The biggest thing about that is I think the younger you are, the more Roth pays off because the whole concept between doing Roth deferrals into a 401k is the time that you have the money in the market. So the longer the money's in the market, the more beneficial it is for you because the more it grows, the more it comes out tax-free. So if someone were to, in the example you'd mentioned earlier, let's just go say that we're going from one job A to job B, what options do people have for their old 401k now? I mean, one option is to go out and cash that, but obviously if you're not at retirement, you probably shouldn't do that. And so at that point, would you want to roll over that 401k to the new plan? Should we roll that out into an IRA? I guess, what are some options that people have? Well, you do have a few options and I'm right with you there, Will. Do not cash it out. And you know our stats still show us across the United States, 42% of the people cash it out when they leave one job to another, which once somebody does it, they really realize they will never do it again because they lose about 40% to taxes and penalty. So you do have a couple options. You can roll to your next company or you can roll to an individual retirement account and add to that. I would say in your younger years, when you're just starting and you've been at a job a couple of years and moving to another job, roll from company to company, keep your one pot of gold all together. You got great diversification because you're investing in stock and bond mutual funds with thousands of stocks and bonds. So you don't have to worry about that. As you get older, maybe you have a chunk in your company's retirement plan, then you take a new job in your fifties and you say, okay, I'm going to roll that to an IRA. I think that's probably a good move too, because then you have some options with that IRA. What if you you know, had a hardship and you want to take some money out? You could pay the taxes and penalty and take that out early. And maybe your company plan doesn't allow for that. So there are a little bit more options with an IRA. But as you're younger and you're just building that portfolio, keep it all together. And again, it's always more cost-effective to be part of a corporate retirement plan than being an individual investor. Let's now go have a conversation with Bobby about some of the best practices on building credit and emergency funds. So Bobby, if the current pandemic has taught us anything, it's to be prepared for the unexpected. One common way that people can help mitigate this risk is through having an emergency fund. So what is this exactly and how would you go about starting one? So an emergency fund is a specific amount of cash that you set aside. You don't invest it in the market and it's not held in an account that has withdrawal restrictions or it's difficult to access. For example, if you need cash and there's a market downturn, you wouldn't want to sell investments when the price is low. Also, you don't want the cash to be in a retirement account like an IRA or a 401k where you would owe taxes and possibly excuse me, an early withdrawal penalty when you take out the funds. The general rule of thumb is to have enough cash to cover at least three to six months of your non-discretionary expenses. My personal view, especially after the pandemic, is that it's okay to build up your emergency fund to 12 months or even 24 months of cash, depending on your circumstances and what you have already stocked away for retirement. 
basically an emergency fund gives you options when unexpected things happen, like, like the economy shuts down due to a global pandemic, or you can't work because of illness or injury, or when you have an unplanned home repair. And I also think it's nice to have that extra cash for events that aren't necessarily emergencies, but still really important to you. For many people, you know, say traveling out of state to attend a niece's wedding or to visit your brother who's terminally ill is just as important as repairing your roof or replacing your furnace. And many times it's more important. So it's nice to have, you know, that extra security with a cash emergency fund. Oh, of course. And, you know, in my own personal opinion too, can help give the people who help save that money too, for whoever's out there, the savers, good sleep at night insurance, knowing that if they want that extra flexibility in their life, they have that extra cash on the sidelines. And so I appreciate you mentioning that. And so looking into now going from emergency funds over to the other side of our balance sheet, over to the credit side of things, what are some good tips for building a strong credit score? I know that there's probably a million different things that all get factored in, but in your opinion, what are some of the easiest, best tips for people to help build a stronger credit score for people? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been getting a lot of interest from clients about their personal credit scores lately. I would think your payment history has the most impact on your credit score. So it's very important to pay your bills on time. And a lot of people actually miss payments just because they forget to pay them, not necessarily because they don't have the money. And I get it. We're all really busy nowadays doing many things at once, but I just stress, make it a priority to pay those bills on time. So paying them on time is is very important. And you should also take advantage of your, your credit report that's available to you for free by all three of the major credit reporting agencies. And you can, you can download those at annualcreditreport.com. And once you've received your report, I would recommend you peruse it for any unfamiliar, unauthorized accounts, wrong names, wrong phone numbers, wrong addresses, incorrect balances, duplicates, and then you report any errors or discrepancies to that agency. Another factor with your credit score is the amount of outstanding debt that you have compared to the total credit that you've been given. So the lower your debt to credit ratio, the better your credit score. And then just a few other good tips to build your credit score are keeping credit lines open that you've had for a long time, even if you don't use them. How much money should people be saving for retirement? And then also, what should that frequency be? So is it the best way for someone to be saving money on a weekly basis, bi-weekly, monthly, yearly, I guess? In your opinion, what's an easy rule of thumb for people? Yeah, and I think a lot of things have changed in this regard. So many years ago, we worked our entire career with the same company. We received our pension at retirement and our social security benefits in our 60s, and we lived the rest of our lives in, in comfort. And we didn't place the same focus or import on saving our income as we do now. So in today's world, you work about 40 years for a handful of employers, most of whom do not offer you a pension. And then you're retired for 30 plus years receiving social security benefits that don't come close usually to covering your spending needs, let alone your your wants. So for me, I would say it's all about balance. 
saving for retirement is. It's about having enough money now for the food shelter fund while putting some of your income away for future you who will want the exact same thing. So I would say you should save as much as you can without making serious sacrifices to your life now and later without the savings. So that amount is easily 10 to 15% of your income in your 20s and 30s, and then 20 to 30% of your income if you start in your 40s and 50s. And then also I'd say the, the best way to save for retirement is to automate it. Most commonly done through income deferrals from your paycheck into your employer-sponsored retirement plan, like your 401k. It's the most effective way to accumulate wealth outside of home ownership. Sure. Those are all really good tips. And I know for some people, if they made bad financial decisions, sometimes people can start to dwell on those mistakes that they made in the past, and it can really alter how their own future financial thoughts are. And so could you expand on some different ways for people to try and cope with that and potentially overcome that too, so they could you know, be on that path to financial freedom? Yeah. So I would say the most important piece of advice that I can give anyone is to forget about whatever happened in the past, to let it go, just move beyond the bad decisions you made or the good decisions you never made. We've all been there, myself included. I mean, it's called life, it's unpredictable, it throws us curveballs and we're not perfect. So in my experience, the biggest obstacle to addressing you know, bad debt or to planning for the future to plan for retirement, to plan for unexpected expenses or scary dips in the market. The biggest obstacle is procrastination. I think people know financial planning is important, but they sometimes put it off and stall because they're embarrassed about the past or they just don't know where to go or who to trust for some direction. So my advice is to start today, ask questions today, Ask your friends and family how they plan for the future and who they trust and who they work with. And just let go of whatever happened in the past and make planning for the future a priority today. And last but not least, let's go have a conversation with John about behavioral finance. So John, in an easy way, could you describe what behavioral finance is? And then why does it have such a large role in our lives? Yeah, well, so behavioral finance is really the study of psychology and its effects on our financial decisions. Simply put, it's understanding our internal behavior, our emotions, and what impact and role they play on specific financial decisions that we make on a daily basis, on a yearly basis, and really what it does to shape our overall financial picture. It plays such a huge role in our lives really because it's a result of something that's happening with our ability to formulate a response to something that comes up. And we can do this consciously or subconsciously on so many different levels. And it's helping to understand why we're wired to make certain decisions, specific ways that we do, that can have a massive impact on our overall financial lives. So if I'm getting this correctly, just to kind of put it in simple layman's terms, is this why you'd see a house listed for $99,000 compared to $100,000 and someone that may see the house for $99,000 might see as in, wow, that's a, that's a great bargain. But maybe if it gets up to $100,000 and you're like, well, that's six figures all of a sudden. You know, It's only a $1,000 difference, but is this what behavioral finance triggers us to do? 
It can. Yeah. So you're talking about a huge sub-market of marketing expertise when it comes to pricing. So there's experts all across the nation that will go into supermarkets, that will go in and talk with realtors, that will go in and talk about the way that a price actually looks on screen and how consumers perceive that price and whether they're getting a value when really it might be a penny or a dollar or something to the effect. But it's an internal trigger in our minds that make us think that all of a sudden it's cheaper than what we might expect, or it's one dollar or penny or whatever it is. And so the the kind of the feel like we're getting a deal internally, even though financially it might not be or make any material difference in our lives, is something that triggers. And that's something that's hardwired into us. And that's the psychology that's happening in the background whenever these things come up or we're thinking about big purchases or we're thinking about saving or investing or anything along those lines. Definitely. Thanks for touching on that. I know that that can definitely have such a big impact, whether you're going through the drive-through or maybe you're going to get going to about purchase a house. And I know something else that a lot of investors and people and just really anyone struggles with is biases. I know that biases in particular can have a big impact on investors. And so whether that's hindsight bias, loss aversion, or others. And so what can people do to help avoid falling to some of these biases? Good question. Awareness is number one, right? So being aware of our emotion, there's a big study on emotional intelligence and how we can take a step back and understand Whenever we're faced with a decision, how our bodies react, how our mind starts to process that information, if we can sit back and we can actually understand our emotions a little bit better, that can help us formulate better responses, better decisions. It can help us avoid those major biases that lead us to make maybe a less informed decision or maybe put us down a path that we've been down before just because we might perceive something and have that internal bias, whether it's, you know, I bought this stock or I, I invested X amount of dollars and now all of a sudden it's dipped below that because the markets and the economy might be struggling in the short term. And it's a bias to make us feel like we have to get back to whole. And so we feel like we have to make a decision. We have to change something up to get us back to whole because what we did originally isn't working. When in retrospect, it can be to take a pause, take some time to better formulate what our overall plan is, why we chose to be in the position that we were prior to any of this happening. And then all of a sudden we can go ahead and go forward and make more illogical, deliberate decisions and avoid these biases that we have. And we could get into specifics on all of those types of biases, but ultimately what they do is they just lead us to make at times irrational decisions. And so by taking that pause, taking that moment to be a little bit more deliberate about it, it helps us to make a much more informed answer and can kind of stop us from hurting ourselves in the long run. Of course, you know, I think that's a perfect way to go put that. And I think what a lot of people struggle with is really trying to help frame this and really think of the long term. And so how can someone shift their thinking from being more short-term focused to trying to be more long-term? It's a good question. It's why we have a job, Will. (laughs) This is a lot easier said than done. Turning out the noise, tuning out the noise that we see on a daily basis is something we'll say all the time, but it's hard. It's hard because everything's in front of our face all the time, you know, whether it's news outlets, social media outlets, the speed of information, all these things that happen, happen so quickly. That's what they want us to focus on the short term because we can see quick effects. 
we can see quick results in the short term. But when it comes to investing, when it comes to those types of things, it's not a short-term gain. For most people, it isn't. And majority of people, you know, it should be that long-term piece. So being able to tune that out is the first ability to be able to be very successful at investing. But we know that's not always going to help. So it's always reframing our thinking to think about, again, what our purpose is here. You know, for most of our clients and most people that we talk to, it always comes back to about the timing of when you need your money, right? When you need this to last and how long you need it to last. When we can reframe their perspective to think about the long-term, short-term occurrences and short-term effects on the market rarely have any meaningful impact for a client that continues to stay long-term focused. And so being able to associate that time frame and realize that I don't need all this money tomorrow. I need some of it each year for a long period of time. And that way you can focus on that long-term growth, that long-term asset allocation, diversification within the portfolio that can minimize the short-term risks and really give you the long-term investment results that you're looking for. So John, flipping what you just mentioned on their head, I know for some people, they save and save and save throughout their whole entire lives for retirement. And sometimes when they have that big balance of money sitting for them at retirement, it's often very hard for them to flip the switch to start spending their money. In that regards, I know that you're still thinking long-term because that money has to last you for your whole entire life. But what would you tell someone who may have been saving and saving and saving and thinking long-term, but then all of a sudden they need to start spending some of their money to help with their lifestyle expenses or other expenses that just may come up in retirement? Yeah. Again, it gets right back to the way that we are hardwired. You know, we spend majority of our lives in a working career, or many of us do. And so during that time, you're used to accumulating. And that's the vast majority of our, like I said, of our lives. So you're wired into that mode. And all of a sudden, it's the psychology of seeing the breakdown of saying, I'm not getting a paycheck anymore. I got to replace that out of savings. And it's hard for people to conceptualize that. And what we encourage, clients and people to think about is you just got to start trying it, work the plan. So we help people and we help you identify roughly what that amount is that you're going to need a month. And if we've done a good job of planning, we've created the investment strategy behind it to sustain that type of withdrawal. And so it's a little bit of trust the process in the beginning. We always tell people live, live that number for a few months and then see it in action. And as you get through those first couple months, that year, you'll just really see it work for you. And so giving it that time to work out, it starts to change the way we perceive that big balance that we saved up over time. And if we're doing it right, you know, we can maintain that balance. Now I'll flip it and go one step further. And let's say that someone they're used to seeing that balance and they don't want to see that go down. That's okay. You can try and build the investment strategy to maintain their distribution rate. We can do that. But let's say someone wants to be as conservative and they're okay spending that money again in their head, being okay with seeing balances tick down. Now the goal is so that we don't exhaust those. It's okay for those to come down because you can be more conservative. You can use that money to the extent that you need it to and it can come down. And that's okay if that's something that the client or the individual is okay with. Because again, you'd be taking less risk, but you're trying to make that money last as as long as what you need it to. And again, it's just the way that we're wired to kind of think in opposite terms 
when it's really okay. It's okay to do that spending. It's okay to set this up on a path as long as you're aware of what it means over time. And that's why working with an advisor, why working with a professional can help you understand that, help coach you through that, reassure you that you have the right strategies in place to meet whether it's the goal to maintain, okay to let it drift down, or I want it to continue to grow while still doing all the things I want to do. You know, an advisor can help you see all different types of investment strategies to go ahead and meet all those different types of goals that a client may have. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Mint Money. Please don't forget to follow our podcast so you don't miss when new episodes drop. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Mitten Money, sponsored by TriStar Trust. Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Mm-hmm.